All right, well, let's open to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, thank you for hanging in there last week uh, with me as we talked about ancient laws and law codes and what uh, law is in the ancient world, what is happening here. We gave an introduction to what law is and, and how we interpret law even today as Christians. And we talked about the distinction between what was the old covenant given to Israel versus what's the new covenant given to, to Christ. So we're today going to get into uh, the laws themselves, as last week was uh, bringing them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And then here we have the giving of the law. So shortly after the Exodus, Israel was challenged to make covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And the people responded that they would do everything that Yahweh had said. Moses would then tell the people, all the Lord's words and laws. And again, they would respond positively, we will obey. To confirm their vows, Moses would sprinkle the blood on an altar and on the people, and the covenant was official. So we can break this uh, section today down in three different sections. In chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Then beginning in chapters 21, 22, and 23, those are what is called the Book of the covenant. These are additional laws that kind of uh, expound upon the basic Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 24, we have the ratification of the covenant uh, when it is made official. So these are the three major sections, chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments, chapters 21 through 23, which contain all of the laws expounding upon the Ten Commandments, and then chapter 24 is where the commandment and the covenant is actually ratified and becomes official. So that's what we want to look at today. We want to break down what's going on in these chapters. So the heart of the covenant that is given here at Sinai is what we call the Ten Commandments. And we're very familiar with the Ten Commandments. You know, for most of us that grew up in church, I know for me, uh, I remember Sunday school classes, we had the, you know, Ten Commandments on the wall, not the official Ten Commandments, but, a, you know, a poster with the Ten Commandments on the wall. That would have been neat to have the real Ten Commandments on the wall. But we had a poster with the Ten Commandments, and, you know, as young children growing up in Sunday school and children's church, you know, we learned the, the Ten Commandments, and that's one of the, the foundational things that we learn as Christians. And certainly for the Jews, that was the foundation of all of their law were these Ten Commandments uh, that were contained on two tablets of stone. Uh, the Greek word is what is called the Decalogue. Uh, the Decalogue is what it's called in, in Greek. And there are many names uh, for it. They're, they're called the Words of the Covenant, uh, the Tablets of Testimony, the Tablets of the Covenant uh, is another word for them. Uh, His Covenant is another term for it. There are several terms used for the Ten Commandments here. Uh, the Ten Commandments are also repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, verses, I think, 5 through 21. 5 through 21. Uh, Moses is repeating. He, he's near the end of his life, and he's going back in 40 years earlier and telling, recount, uh, recounting all of the events that happened, and he goes through these Ten Commandments here again. Um, the Decalogue is straightforward, thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Of course, we all know that. Um, thou shalts, thou shalt nots. And that is what is called uh, apodictic law. We looked at that last week. Apodictic law is absolute commands. Uh, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. Uh, you shall honor the Sabbath, thou and thou shalt 
knots. Um, inscribed by the finger of God, we see in Exodus 31, 18, on two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant at God's command. He commanded them to put the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant as a sign of their importance. Last week, if you remember, when we talked about ancient laws where two nations or two peoples would make a covenant, they would make two copies and they would each put it in the uh, temple of their God or they would put it in safe keeping. Uh, and that's one of the things that they did. So, you know, it's, it's speculated. We don't really know, like I said last week, if there were five commandments on one stone and five on the other, or if they were two copies of the same law that was both put in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. But nevertheless, they were inscribed by God, put on two tables of stone, and then placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there are different ways, we won't get into this, there are different ways that the commandments are counted between Judaism and you know, Christianity, of which, you know, what exactly is one, two, three, four, five, but they're all, they're all the same. Uh, so when we get into the commandments themselves, we are prefaced here in chapter 20, verse 1. Um, it says, God spoke all these words. Now remember last week when we talked about ancient laws and ancient covenants, we said that there was a kind of a form to these covenants that were given. Uh, you would have your prologue where uh, the ones who are making the covenant is identified. Uh, the, the suzerain, the, the king, the greater is identified. And here we have the same thing. In verse number 2 of Exodus 20, he says, I am the Lord your God, or the Hebrew word, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We also said in ancient covenants that there was uh, a little bit of historical prologue. Uh, about where, how we got to this point of making this covenant. So we have the introduction by Yahweh, then we have a little bit of the past history of what happened, how we got to this point. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we go into the laws. So we read, You shall have no other gods before me. Notice, and that's, that's connected. I am Yahweh, your God. I brought you out. So because I am Yahweh, I am your God, I brought you out. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. He doesn't want their allegiance shared with any other God. And these are going to be very important as they get ready to go into Canaan because they would be surrounded with influence of other nations and other gods. So the first thing he establishes them is have no other gods, make no other image, do not bow down, do not worship them, for I am your God, I am Yahweh, and he identifies himself as a jealous God, for his people are only to have and worship him. He says, visiting the iniquity, this is continuing in verse number 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands or thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, uh, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. 
Then he explains the Sabbath. Uh, in verse number 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, uh, you shall not covet his wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And this is the Ten Commandments. Uh, literally, it's uh, the word there is it's literally the ten words. It's, it's the Decalogue. It's these that are the foundation for the law. So let's just kind of very quickly walk through these. We won't expound a great deal on all of them because here's what you come to find out. The Ten Commandments that we've just read, they're pretty simplistic and they're pretty general. Uh, I don't want to use the term vague, but you shall not steal. We'll, we'll steal what? You know, uh, that's going to be expounded upon in the rest of the law. But these are kind of the foundations for which all of the other laws... Um, the casuistic laws, the case laws, are going to be founded upon. So the first commandment, again, we just talked about that a little bit. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a direct response to the opening statement. I am Yahweh your God. I brought you out, not Baal, you know, not these other gods. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the hand of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, Israel was forbidden to even make covenant uh, with the people or the gods of Canaan. In fact, when they went into Canaan, they were not even supposed to let them dwell in the same land that the Israelites were dwelling in, in case they would uh, adopt their cultic practices for their gods. Uh, if the nation made a treaty with the people of Canaan, they would soon be tempted to worship their gods. So God says, no, none, none of that. Um, in Deuteronomy, the seven Canaanite nations are mentioned in connection with the prohibition against making a treaty or intermarrying with them. So we find there are other laws against intermarriage, you know, properties, things of this nature concerning these other nations, which goes back to the first commandment of you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not worship them, I'm a jealous God. So God establishes that first. The second, uh, don't make a graven image uh, or bow down to idols, lays out clear consequences. So if they were to have other gods, or they were to make a graven image and begin to worship that thing in the place of God, notice it says that the punishments would be visiting, uh, on, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So there was this idea of this you know, punishment that would last you know, generationally to a few generations. But on those that love Him, that keep His commandments, that stay faithful, Steadfast love to thousands of generations, even showing in the law God's mercy and steadfast love outlast his, uh, the, the judgment visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. So, you know, when, when, when people say, and we talk about this a lot, we talk about law and grace, and it seems like the Old Testament is filled with God judging and punishing people and you know, the New Testament, Jesus comes and offers forgiveness and love and grace and all of this. And you can almost, and it has been by, you know, some critics and other people in the church, made it look like there are two different gods, how God acted. He was just mean, wrathful, and vengeful, and he's, you know, graceful and peaceful in the New Testament. But that's not true at all. We've seen that the character of God is the same over and over and over again. 
uh, we'll see a little bit later, probably next week in Exodus, that God establishes Himself as one who is compassionate, merciful, uh, loving. In fact, the heart of this covenant is Him taking a people to show His steadfast love to. But because they were under this law, there was consequences to breaking the law. And there were uh, curses to breaking the law, and that's the framework that he worked with. But even in verses like this, when you see God's judgment, you also see his mercy outlasting his judgment, visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generation versus those who love me, showing steadfast love to thousands of generations. We see when God, and I've said this before, but we see when God has to judge his people. It's a last resort. God is patient. He's long-suffering. He sends prophets. He warns them. He begs them. He pleads them. He, he tries to allure them back to her. He does everything he can to keep from enacting the justice and judgment that the law proclaims has to take place. So, yes, God is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we'll even see, you know, in a few chapters later, it talks about his compassion. And we'll see in the laws the way that you know, even though there are some laws that we would look at today, we would say, well, that, that's not kind of the era that we live in today. Uh, we still see God's morality is higher than those of the other nations around them. So his steadfast love to thousands uh, of generations. Uh, the, the third commandment uh, shall not take the name of the Lord your God uh, in vain. Again, you know, what, is, what does that mean? You know, we, we, we were taught if we you know, I was taught growing up if we, you know, say God's name in a, in a you know, casual way or saying it in a way and putting it in front of a customer, that's, that's breaking the commandment. Uh, the commandment here, again, we're not told exactly, but probably more than likely refers uh, especially to false or frivolous oaths. Uh, consider an affront to deity or you would swear by a deity, you would make an oath by a deity you know, and if you break those, or if you did not keep up your end of the bargain, or if you lied in, under the name, under the oath of a deity, uh, that would be taking the name of the Lord God in vain. Of course, uh, it would certainly prohibit swearing to uh, a falsehood in God's name. Uh, so anything that, that defames the name of God could be put uh, under the third commandment. The fourth commandment requires obedience of the Sabbath day. Uh, which made Israel unique among the nations. Some nations uh, would even see Israel as lazy, you know, for taking a, a whole day to rest. Uh, but the Sabbath was a very important requirement to the law. It distinguishes the seventh day of the week as holy, and therefore the Israelites are to rest, and they are to do no work. Uh, the name is derived from a Hebrew verb meaning to rest. That's what the Sabbath means. Sabbath means to rest. Uh, here in Exodus 20, verse 11, uh, the Israelites are commanded to rest on the Sabbath day because God rested on the Sabbath day after creating the cosmos. Uh, it, and it's interesting to note that when you go to Deuteronomy and you read the Ten Commandments of Deuteronomy, the reason given for rest and keeping the Sabbath is in commemoration of them being freed from slavery in Egypt. So you have two different not conflicting, obviously, but two different reasons that were given for the Sabbath. One was because God rested, and the other is because they were in slavery with hard labor, and now they are to take a day to rest under the fourth commandment. And not only were they supposed to rest, but uh, their animals were supposed to rest uh, so that they could work the next week. 
Uh, their slaves, their servants were supposed to rest so that they would be refreshed for the next week. Uh, so not just the people, but the, the servants in the house and the animals that did you know, a lot of the plowing and the labor, they were all supposed to rest on the seventh day. Then you come to the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is the first of the commandments that regulates a human's relationship with other humans. So far we've seen how we relate or how Israel was to relate. You, you see how I just put that in there, how we were to relate? You know, how Israel was to relate to God um, by having no other gods, by not taking the name of the Lord God in vain, by not having any graven images, um, by remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are all directed toward God. Now we have commandments directed toward one another. Uh, and the first one here has to do with the authority structure of the family. It says to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Um, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, this was one of the ones that my parents used on me <laughs> by saying, if you don't honor your father and your mother, you'll die at a young age, you know, and uh, because if you want a long life, you'll honor your father and your mother. I didn't know if that means God was going to kill me or mom or dad were going to kill me, but somebody was going to kill me if I didn't honor and listen and obey mom and dad. Um, so somebody's going to die, you know, and it's going to be the one that disobeys mom and dad. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you threaten your kids with that, but it worked pretty well with me for a while. Um, but notice the promise here. You know, the promise here in Exodus isn't that you would live a long life, but it's that your days would be long in the land. Notice that's a covenant term uh, for Israel, that their days would be long in the promised land of Canaan by keeping this commandment. Now, when you go to Ephesians, now Paul does uh, when Paul talks about the family, because listen, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but like honoring your father and mother, that's a general principle that should be applied to everybody. You know, even though that was a commandment that was given to Israel, and we'll talk about it, but that, that's something that you know, no child should you know, dishonor and their father and their mother. That, that's, I, be, I believe that's an eternal principle, you know, old covenant or new covenant. And Paul does mention when he's talking about that this is the first commandment that was given with a promise that your days will be long. Now, Paul doesn't go on to say in Ephesians that if you disobey your parents, you're going to die an early death. Uh, he doesn't say that. He just knows that this is the first one with a promise. Now, every command would have a promise because they had blessings and curses. Blessings if you keep it and curses if you don't. Uh, but this was one that was specific. Uh, so, you know, does this mean that you're going to die in early age? You know, if you disobey your parents, well, I mean, probably all of us at one point in time did do that. Uh, you know, I probably have. But I want you to see the, the overall principle is you should honor your father and your mother, old covenant and new covenant. You know, that, that shouldn't change. Uh, you know, you should honor your father and your mother. You know, the, now the promise of living in the land, that is a specific covenantal promise that we see here for Israel because it had to do with the connection to the promised land of Canaan. And what we're going to see is all of these laws have to do when they look forward to when they enter the land of Canaan. Um, so you honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise. Um, children are to honor their parents. The New Testament, Paul points this out. Uh, continued existence in the promised land is contingent on honoring one's parents. That's the fifth commandment. The sixth commandment, usually translated, you shall not 
kill. Here in the ESV is you shall not murder. Uh, murder would be the appropriate term there. Uh, the Hebrew word is often used for murder, but also sometimes for unintentional killing. It's used as well, manslaughter. Uh, the effect of this law is not to prevent all killing because some killing is a part of the law. Killing for judicial punishment, you know, corporal punishment, the death penalty. Uh, so when you did certain things, the Israelites were commanded to put that person to death. So this isn't killing in general because there are provisions made for judicial punishment, but to regulate the unlawful taking of another's life and to make it uh, subject to this community control here of you know, not murdering. The seventh commandment is a prohibition against adultery uh, concerning the violations of marriage. Adultery is wrong because it infringes on the covenant of marriage and throws into question the paternity of a child who will inherit the family land. Uh, so no adultery. The eighth commandment. The eighth commandment is against stealing, uh, but it's not offering any specific uh, specifications of what is stolen. Some scholars... Uh, believe and have argued that originally it was concerning the stealing of persons or kidnapping, uh, but the commandment as it stands is in general, thou shalt not steal. Uh, the ninth commandment is bearing false witness against your neighbor. Uh, the commandment is worded in a way that points to bearing false witness in court. You know, as it was taught to us as a child, it was taught you shall not lie. Of course, lying is another one of those, you know, principles. Uh, that we find, although there's interesting stories about that Rahab lying about, you know, all this stuff. So there's some interesting ethical things that are there. Um, you know, if somebody comes in your house and says, uh, if your family's hiding in the closet, and they say, is anybody else in the house so I can kill them? Are you going to say, yeah, they're back there in the closet? <laughs> Probably not. Be like, nope, nobody else is here. Um, but bearing false witness here has to do uh, primarily in this context, even though lying in a general sense is wrong. Uh, is bearing false witness in court. Uh, the importance of truth in witnessing is illustrated by cases where someone is put to death on the basis of false witness. Uh, the story of uh, Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings comes to mind. Those um, later laws would warn that no one should be put to death on the word of just one witness. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses should one, should, you know, should one be accused. Uh, and then the 10th commandment uh, supplements the injunctions against adultery and stealing by forbidding even coveting of another's goods. So up until this point, we've had, you know, actions against one another, honoring your father and your mother, not killing, not stealing, not bearing false witness. Uh, but here you have an internal, uh, an internal uh, not coveting against others. Um, so the notable aspect of this commandment is surely the inclusion of the neighbor's wife along with his slaves, his oxen, and his donkey. Up to this point, the Ten Commandments require external behavior. However, with the commandment not to covet, the entire law is internalized. So that lays out here for us the Ten Commandments. Now after the Ten Commandments, when we get down to verse number 18, uh, the people have heard God's words because God spoke you know, to, to everybody. They've heard God's words. They've seen the black smoke covering Mount Sinai. They've heard the thunderings and seen the lightnings. And it says they were afraid. And it says they trembled. And it says they were afraid so much so that they didn't want to hear the voice of God anymore. <laughs> In fact, they told Moses, they said, Moses, 
we don't want to hear from him again. He's scary. We want to hear from you. You go talk to God and you come back and tell us, because if he keeps talking to us, we're all going to die. Uh, that's what they say. Uh, so they say, Moses, you go. Verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, and he responds by basically saying, yeah, he's doing this to scare you. That's what Moses says. He says he's doing this so that you will fear and you will not sin. Uh, so if, if God is scary enough, then it will cause you to fear and you will not sin. Well, obviously that fear didn't work too well going on into the history of the nation of Israel because they would sin, they would break the covenant, uh, and they would suffer the consequence of that. But they said, Moses, sweet, we don't want to hear from him. We want to hear from you. We're all going to die, Moses says. So then based on that, you need to do what God says uh, so that you will live and be blessed in the land. Then we have a uh, short little verses here, verses 22 through 26 uh, about altars. Uh, how God tells Moses how the people are to make altars to worship Him. Um, probably, uh, probably in contrast to the Canaanite altars, that their altars would be different. Um, and they're not to put steps on the altar uh, so that you won't get a peek of somebody's nakedness walking up the steps. Uh, yeah, that's in there, verse 26. Uh, so you have this little few verses about altars. And then we get into verse, or chapter 21. So we said there were three sections to this. Chapter 20 was the Ten Commandments. Now, chapters 21 through 23 is what we call the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. Um, we find here in verse number 21, These are the rules that you shall set before them. Some, some commentators put the Book of the Covenant as beginning in chapter 20, verse 22. Um, but the laws start here in chapter 21, verse 1. So if you look in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, These are the rules that you shall set before them. So now we're moving into uh, some different territory. We've had the Ten Commandments. Now we're going to have this book of the covenant. We've had the ten words. Now we're going to have the book of the covenant. And really this is kind of expounding upon some of the principles that we've seen in the Ten Commandments. And many of these, and we'll look at where they begin and end, many of these are the if-then laws. Remember we said there are apodictic laws that are straightforward. You shall not lie, you shall not kill. Then there's what you call casuistic laws, which are scenarios. You know, if you happen to, you know, if your ox gets loose and goes on another person's property and injures somebody, then this is going to be the consequence. So you have these if-then scenarios. And that's what you find in the majority of chapter 21 and 22. And again, these laws would specifically govern Israel as they would arrive in Canaan. So we have a paragraph there, and I want to read this, this paragraph. You know, Canaan frames the whole section because that's where they're going to. They're going to Canaan. Uh, and these laws were to help them live obediently in the land of Canaan so that they would be blessed in the land of Canaan, that they would show the differentiation between themselves and the other pagan nations. Uh, so that's what these laws are for. This is how they are to live as God's people, obedient to Yahweh in the land of Canaan. And that fact alone, 
should suggest that these laws may not be of constant or abiding value for all people through all ages. So we've looked at a couple of instances. Okay, we, we've all agreed, you know, you should, in general, you know, Old Covenant, New Covenant, is, you know, Jews, non-Jews, it's a good thing to honor your father and your mother. It's a good thing to obey your parents. Um, it's a good thing not to lie. It's a good thing not to bear false witness. Uh, so, there are, but, so there are general principles. Now to the Christian, as we said last week, you know, well, let me just keep reading. I think I addressed it in here. Let me just keep reading. Because if not, I'll just repeat it. Okay. Not that these laws are all irrelevant. We should all be on board with general truths, such as not spreading false reports. Although we may not be as concerned with whether farmland lies fallow or rest every seventh year. You know? So we have general truths that can be applicable for all people at all time. And then there are specifics that you could tell, okay, this was for these people in this place at this time and is not an eternal truth that if I keep it, I'll go to heaven. If I break it, I'll go to hell. Okay, that, that's not what the picture is here at all. Biblical laws have an ancient context and there is some general value in them, but it takes some work to discern how and to what extent. Connecting our context to the ancient context is a difficult task. Theology has always been more than cutting and pasting passages into our lives, because that's what we do a lot of times. You know, we'll, we'll pick things from all over the Bible, and, but it takes it's more work than that. Uh, keep in mind, these are specific laws. Well, let me go back and read that. It has been about building a discerning connection between the ancient and the modern times. So I may not have the exact similar or the exact same situation as you know, the people here in Exodus, but I might can take the principle behind it and apply it to my life in order that things would go better with me. So even in the midst of these laws, there are general principles that you can take and you can find that you can apply to your lives that would be God-honoring. Even though we are not bound and these laws are not binding to us in the way that they were to Israel, it does not mean that there is not a spirit of the law behind it. And that's what Paul talked about. Paul talked about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. You know, they were trying to keep the letter of the law and keeping the letter of the law, he says no one can do that, and that ends up in death. But the spirit of the law gives life. So while we are not bound as Christians, Gentile Christians living in the 21st century, to every one of these laws, that doesn't mean there's not something in them that we can apply to our lives today that would be God-honoring, that would make our lives better, you know, that, that we could exemplify ourselves as distinct people as well. But we have to be careful not to make that a new kind of law, bring condemnation to people. So these laws were given in a for a specific law, for specific people, in a specific context. They're, they were not eternal laws for all people of all time, but there may be general truth within these laws, and we can apply in a modern way, but just know that we are not bound to them as Israel was. So, you know, we don't take Israel's law and their blessings and curses and their promises in the land, you know, and say that's binding upon us as Christians today because it's not. But that does not mean, like Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, that we shouldn't obey our parents. You see, that's, 
that is connected. But we put obeying our parents in the context of how we live today. You know, I don't believe that we are bound by keeping the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You know, and we talked about that last week. You know, Sunday is not the biblical Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. You know, it's not. <laughs> now, Sunday was the Lord's day that the church met together and they took offerings and they did these things, but they never said that Sunday was a binding Sabbath, you know, that you must keep. But, but we are also told in the New Testament, you know, some people... You know, they, they keep specific days as holy. Some people regard every day. So it's basically saying no matter what you do, do everything unto the Lord. Don't have one day for the Lord. Have every day for the Lord. And no matter what you do in those days, do them as honoring the Lord. And that's keeping every day holy because He's with us every day. But however, can you take... Is it a good thing to take the principle of taking a day of rest and applying it to our lives? Absolutely. What does he say? He says, work six days, take a day of rest. Don't work. Don't let your animals work. Don't let your servants work. Everybody rest and get refreshed. Could it be that today we go and go and work and do so much that we don't take a day to rest? I mean, think about it in your life. When's the last time we took a full day to just rest? You know, I probably took about six hours on Saturday, you know, to rest while the kids were downstairs, you know, playing. But when have we ever taken just a full day just to rest, just to, to focus upon God? Now, is that a binding thing that God's going to curse us if we don't? No, because we are free from the curse of the law. But is, should we take a day of rest? That would probably be a good, healthy thing for everybody. Should we, should we meet on the, on the Lord's Day on Sunday or when the corporate body gathers to worship the Lord? Sure. You know, if for some reason we can't do that, can we take another day and worship the Lord and honor God there? Absolutely. You know, we're, we're not bound by these laws. But we take the spirit of them and we put them in our lives to make all of our lives as God honoring. So, therefore, you know, we have all these things. Um, Let's go on. So there's th- th- that's just a little word about these before we get into them. Um, the laws of the book of the covenant, the actual laws themselves, begin in chapter 21, verse number 2. Uh, and as, as I you know, jokingly mentioned last week, when verse 2 starts, when you buy a Hebrew slave, you know, probably none of us are going to go out today and purchase a Hebrew slave. Um, so is that going to apply to us? No, probably not. Um, so I want, I want us to look, if you just have a Bible, I just want to point out a few verses, okay? Um, verse number two, you know, when you buy a Hebrew slave, that's, that's a lot. If you go to verse number seven, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, I have thought of that before. <laughs> One of them would be good. The other one ain't worth anything because she don't do nothing. Um, we did get my one daughter a job, so that may be the same thing about that. I mean, kind of got the same, you know. So you have that. You go to verse number twelve. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Verse fifteen. Whoever strikes his father or his mother 
Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother. So there you see some of the Ten Commandments coming back in, dealing with father and mother. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his So these are the casuistic laws. These are what happens in these specific situations. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies. And I'm I'm just reading the first part because then it tells you you what what happens, what, what the proper response is because of the law. Verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child or that her children come out. Verse 26, when the man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it. Verse 28, when the ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox is stoned. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it. Verse 35, when one man's ox butts another's so that it dies. And into chapter 22, Verse 1, if a man steals the oxen or sheep and kills it or sells it. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field. Verse 6, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed. Verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen. Verse 10, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it it dies or is injured. Verse 14, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or it dies. 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her. So those are these case laws. Here's what happens if these things happen. So we've read all of those if this happens. You can go back uh, in your time when you want some light reading and go back and read you know, what happens in each of these cases. Uh, in chapter 22, verse number 18, um, we go back uh, to the apodictic laws, the vows and the thou shalt nots. So if you notice in chapter 22, verse 18, you shall not, so there's that term, you shall not, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, whoever lies with his animal shall be put to death. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Uh, This is one that, you know, is is interesting and probably is different than the other nations surrounding them. So God says in 21, He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or an an alien or oppress him on the basis of this. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So they were not to mistreat the aliens or the sojourners because they were once uh, themselves sojourners and aliens. Uh, Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow widow or fatherless child. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, that goes back to another Uh, case law. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest. Verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. Chapter 23, verse 1, 
You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. Uh, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many as to pervert justice. And then verse number 4 of chapter 23, that goes back to another case. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Verse number 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So that's your basic laws here in these two verses. So we see the different kinds of laws being worked out uh, there. We also see, and I'm not going to go through and read all of this on the paper, uh, basically there's a section there uh, you know, that talks about, I cut out some of the stuff in yours, so I don't know really know what, what I kept in yours or what's in mine. I had a lot longer, and I'm like, they don't want to read all that. Um, I give too much anyway. So, um, you know, we have, again, do not murder. Yeah, that's worked out. Uh, we have, you know, do not steal, do not bear false witness. So we have the Ten Commandments, and these are kind of expounded upon in this book of the covenant. Uh, also, we have the section that includes the case laws, the casuistic laws. We have the apodictic laws that we just pointed out through there. Um, Throughout this section, there are injunctions urging kind treatment uh, for slaves, aliens, widows, and orphans. Uh, they are remembered uh, because of how it, how it felt to be aliens for you or sojourners in the land of Egypt. Concern for the poor is general, uh, in general is encouraged, for the Lord was a compassionate God. And that's said in chapter 22, verse 27. He says, and if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So even in all these laws, yes, even where you know, there's death penalties involved and there's penalties involved and there's uh, all of this curses involved, God still shows himself underlying as I am compassionate. And he shows that in the way that Israel was to treat their slaves versus how um, the other nations treated their slaves. Um, how they were to treat sojourners versus how the other nations treated sojourners. How they treated widows and orphans versus how the other nations. So they were to be distinct in some of these. Even we would look at this and, and we would say some of these are you know, outrageous and you know, we don't sell our daughters as slaves today, at least not in America. They, they, they probably still do in some parts of the world. Uh, but we don't here in, in the Western society, uh, you know, we don't, you know, we've gone through slavery in America. We, we know what that's done. We know that you know, we don't own anybody else. Uh, we don't sell our daughters or things like this. We don't. So there are some things that we look at today and we're like, well, that's not what we do in our Western society. And, you know, for a lot of people, that, that just discredits the whole Bible. But again, these laws in general mirror the ancient world. I mean, these, this is the ancient world. This is how things were. And God chose to give His law to people in an ancient world, in an ancient world context, not in a 21st century context. So again, that's why there are some things that were given to them there that, that we don't bring over. It does not fit in our context today as far as the letter of the law. Um, but the things that, that are praiseworthy, the things that are eternal, that are moral truths that guide everybody, you know, we bring those and live with that spirit of the law there as well. Um, 
Noted above, there, uh, there are several violations punishable by deaths. Also, what we see here, we see the famous eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Um, and that was to make sure the punishment fit the crime. So if, you know, Ezekiel slaps me on the cheek, I can't go and murder his family, you know, because that's not equal. You know, I can slap him back on the cheek. The, fu- the punishment would fit the crime. Uh, you know, and then you have Jesus coming along, and Jesus takes the law, the letter of the law, and he really brings in the spirit of the law. So he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, you know, tooth for tooth. He says, but I say, if one strikes you on the cheek, give him your other cheek. You know, Jesus even preached against the retaliation and that love will overcome retaliation versus what the law was given to Israel. So you have that brought in as well, that Jesus emphasizes the spirit of the law. Um, Then in chapter 23, verses 10 through 19, we have laws about Sabbath and festivals. Uh, Again, the land was to experience a Sabbath rest every seven years. Um, And also that the poor may go in and eat the animals as well. Likewise, each seventh day, the Israelites, uh, they were to uh, cease from their work and rest. Their animals, their slaves were to rest that they may be refreshed. Also here we find laws concerning offering the first fruits of your ground to bring to the house of God. And then we have the three festivals that the Israelites were to celebrate every year. And these are the festivals of unleavened bread, which was connected to the Passover, the Feast of Harvest, or otherwise what we would call Pentecost, and the ingathering, or what we would call tabernacles. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is tied to Passover. Uh, the Feast of uh, Harvest, or Pentecost, is associated with the yearly grain harvest. Um, in the time of Jesus, it was called Pentecost. Uh, the Festival of Ingathering, or the Tabernacles, is named originally for the temporary shelters erected while gathering the harvest, but later it came associated with Israel's dwellings in the 40 years in the wilderness. And then to close out chapter 23 and to close out this section, we have the promise of the conquest of Canaan. So the laws technically stop in verse number 19 of chapter 23. And the last law that we read here in 19 is, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Uh, So if you need that law for today, there you go. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then in verse number 20, going down to the end of the chapter, chapter 23 to verse 33, we have the promise of conquest in Canaan. Notice what is said here in verse number 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. That's Canaan. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people. 
against who you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites uh, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possess the land. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hands, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest, you make, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So here Yahweh would send an angel before them. They were to listen to what he said. Uh, and when they do, he would give them victory over the inhabitants of Canaan. Uh, the Israelites shall obey Yahweh and they will be blessed in the land. However, they are not to make covenants with other people or worship their gods. Then in chapter 24, we close out today in chapter 24, which is the ratification of the covenant. So after the book of the covenant is read, after the Ten Commandments are given, Moses takes and he tells all the people all of these words and they respond in verse number 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He builds an altar. They sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, then he takes the blood. In verse number 6, Moses took half the blood, puts it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, what we just read, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Then in verse number 8, Moses takes the blood, he threw it on the people, and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So after he reads the law, he writes it down, the people agree, he takes the blood, he throws it on the people, he sprinkles the people, says, This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance to all of these words. Um, this scene here is repeated in the book of Hebrews. So I've got the reference there in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 through 20. Um, it talks about, I won't read it, but it talks about how Moses took the blood and he sprinkled all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you. And the writer of Hebrews is contrasting what Moses did here with this blood, with the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Old covenant, with Jesus' blood in the New covenant. How Jesus takes His blood, a better blood, takes it up to heaven, sprinkles it on the mercy seat, obtaining eternal redemption, putting away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So we have both the, the shedding and the sprinkling of blood. However, there's one difference. And it's not in Hebrews, but it's in the Gospels. And we're all familiar with it. But it's when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. If you notice what Moses did, he reads all the laws. The people agree to do it. And he takes the blood and he sprinkles it upon the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus takes a cup. And he says, this cup is my blood in the New Testament. 
and he doesn't sprinkle it upon his disciples. He tells them to drink all of it. To me, that shows that what the blood of this covenant here in Exodus does is it can only cleanse us outwardly. But the blood of Jesus purifies us inwardly. That we take the blood of Jesus and we ingest it on the inside and it changes us. And it purifies and cleanses and washes our hearts and our spirits. And it's better blood that obtains not a temporary covering, but an eternal redemption for us. Not covering sin, but taking it out of the way, as we find here in Hebrews chapter 9, as we have the references there, 12 and 23 through 26. So that's one of those pictures that the writer of Hebrews takes from the story here in Exodus 24. Um, after he sprinkles the people, Moses uh, himself uh, they are, along with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders, uh, they go up on the mountain. Um, and it says here, uh, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Behold, they beheld God and ate and drank. So there was this this meal here of the covenant that takes place with Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and the elders of Israel. Uh, got noted here, a fellowship meal was commonly connected with the ratification of a covenant, uh, though the majestic surroundings of this meal were unique. Uh, then Moses himself is called to the top of the mountains, enveloped with the glory of God. For 40 days, Moses remains in this cloud of glory and receives God's instructions about the law and the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, to the Israelites, the, cr- the cloud like a consuming fire, a symbol of the power and anger of a God who demands obedience to the covenant. Uh, this, uh, then we have the scene repeated there. So this awesome scene ending with Moses going up in this cloud as God's glory fills the mountains for 40 days and 40 nights. So the conclusion is the Israelites have now signed on the dotted line, willingly entering into a binding agreement with Yahweh, The next step on the journey is to build a portable sanctuary where Yahweh will be worshipped as He requires. Thus, the regulations of the Book of the Covenant in hand in the building of the sanctuary about to commence. Israel is in full training mode for entering Canaan as obedient people and faithful worshippers. And that's the plan. We'll see if it goes according to plan. So we've got...